Here we are at the Alpensia Resort, high in the mountains of Pyeongchang, where the first ever Olympic men's big air gold medalist will be crowned on an historic morning for the Winter Olympics and for snowboarding. When I was young, I always had an affinity for jumping, for landing, for balancing, for acrobatics, all of that stuff. Like, by the time I was five or six, I was jumping off the couch and doing 360s. I always like, you know, climbing on things, jumping off things. Our finalists come down the slope, hit the jump there, perform their best tricks, make the landing, and then it's all up to the judges. It's an event of thrills and spills and seems an absolutely perfect fit for the Winter Olympic Games. The motto for Big Air is go big or go home. Big jumps, big air, uh, it's a big paradox in a lot of ways, right? The bigger you go, time and space tends to slow down. It gives you more opportunity to focus on the flow and the trick, the execution. There are a lot of different ways to enjoy skiing. You can enjoy skiing by going as fast as you possibly can down a hill. You could enjoy skiing by jumping as far as you possibly could on a Nordic jump. Freestyle is a whole nother. The joy of jumping in big air. For me, uh, it was ultimate expression. There's just something so liberating about leaving the ground and flying through space. And when you coordinate everything the way you should and you put it down, stomp it. It might sound crazy, but as a kid, I always wanted to fly. Big Air, it's skiing's newest Olympic event. Everything about the venue and format is made for athletes to put their skills and their bodies on the line. Going all in on a single jump, a single trick, can earn you a medal in a matter of seconds if you play your cards right. One, two, three, wow! Nick Gepper throws it down the triple straight to his feet. A bad break, or worse yet, a mid-air reshuffle. And the price to pay can be steep and icy. And just going down hard. You know, all hell kind of breaks loose and just sucks. So I kicked my feet over my head and the next thing I saw was the ground and I was just like, oh my gosh. Yep, gonna hit. He looks like he is knocked out. Today on the podium, how dedicating your life to the highs and the lows of airtime can, in a way, leave you more grounded. From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympic Games. As we near February, we'll bring you the stories from snow and from ice that shape the pursuit of gold. I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi, and over the eight weeks leading up to the opening ceremony, we'll dive into a facet of these games to discover the people and the places that will define them. These Olympics, the big air format makes its skiing debut after wowing with its first snowboard running in Pyeongchang four years ago. This is the discipline that's fresh onto the Olympic roster in 2018. As the name implies, everything about this event is large. But how its practitioners end up in big air seems to always start when they're small. Our first guest, two-time Olympic medalist Nick Gepper, is no exception. Comes the triple Gepper hard over his right shoulder, double grabbing, got it. Forward triple. 
The two-time X Games champ with a terrific run in his first of two in the finals. My name is Nicholas Gepper. I'm from the USA, and my sport is free skiing slope style. Nick, we're talking about big air today, but your road to it is actually about starting not so big. Yeah, so I'm originally from the Midwestern state of Indiana in America, and there's not a whole lot of mountains there. It's pretty flat. There's some there's some little hills. There was one that was big enough to learn how to ski on. It was called Perfect North Slopes. It was about uh, 400 feet tall, and my mom put me in a little peewee ski lessons when I was five years old. I can picture it with a ski suit bigger than you were, right? What turned you into a free skier? So when I was when I was skiing, when I was little, there was one barrier that was essential to break when getting to the next level of jump tricks, and that was going upside down for the first time. And I knew that if I wanted to make anything of myself in skiing, I had to do a backflip or I had to start with a backflip. And so uh, I, I remember the day specifically when I attempted and landed my, my, my first backflip. I was skiing with a group of friends who already, one guy had already done them, like a lot of them. And so it was good to be able to look up to him um, and watch him do them several times. But it was on this little jump at the top of the park. It was one of the most exhilarating days of my youth, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. It sounds scary. Uh, what prepares you to do your first backflip? I mean, I kind of started from a young age doing these acrobatic stunts at home and, and on my skis and my skateboard and my rollerblades, and that trended into what skiing became eventually. What do you mean, what it became? So skiing now is is pretty wild as far as the level of like acrobatic finesse that the top guys have. I would say when I tell people, like if they ask me about my skiing ability and how good of a skier I am, and I tell them that I was an acrobat first and then later like tried to learn how to ski. <laughs> Because I never had any formal skiing instruction growing up. Like I was never in a racing program. I never did moguls or anything like that. I learned how to ski, took a few lessons, and then pretty much spent every day in the park. So as far as like knowing how to actually ski, I was an amateur, but I began to 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 flip and spin pretty early. So the level of uh, aerials and, and acrobatics now is is crazy. So big airs is one jump, right? Are you trying to hit the biggest jumps you can find? How far do you go in the air? Probably between 60 and, and 75 feet is kind of the, the max as far as competition-sized jumps. There's jumps that they build for photo shoots and stuff that get in the range of you know, 80, 90, 100 feet, but those have kind of those were popular like 10, 15 years ago, but now it's kind of more about being a little bit safer with the smaller size jumps, but still um, well enough built to do whatever trick you want. <laughs> safer on a 75 foot jump. I mean, okay, this is me walking from the takeoff to the landing. Here we go. So Nick, tell us what goes into a well-built jump. 
So a well-built jump would be kind of like uh, like a well-maintained road. Like a well-maintained road is smooth. There's not a lot of bumps. It's super fast. So if you're in a performance vehicle, you can go as fast and get as gnarly as you want. Uh, okay, I I'm still walking and listening. So a well-built jump is similar in that it's shaped so that there's the least amount of impact possible with having the most amount of air time to do whatever trick you want. And 75 feet, here I am. No kidding on the airtime. It just took me almost 30 seconds to walk to the landing. How fast do you have to go to fly over this whole way I just walked? I would say, I mean, speeds, I'm not really sure. Maybe like tw anywhere from like 15 to 30 miles an hour. Um, so there is one metric that I use for that, that I remember, and that is to do a triple cork. I like to have about 2.75 seconds to do a triple core. So I would say that like the best jumps I've ever hit are probably about in that range, about anywhere from two and a half to three seconds of, of hang time. Uh, so far, a lot of this looks quite scary. What does it actually feel like to go off of these jumps? There's not a whole lot that goes through my head when I'm jumping. And I say that because... I've done tens of thousands of jumps in my lifetime. So any thinking that I might do um, is pretty much on autopilot and, and it's uh, totally subconscious. But there are a few things. For instance, are there uh, ruts in the takeoff from the other skiers? I'm thinking about going up the takeoff and maintaining like kind of a strong shape of, of my body going up, not really crumbling, but staying pretty like strong all the way up. Um, and then the biggest thing that I think about is being patient, being patient and not uh, rushing the trick, not rushing the trick while you're on, on the jump. And when you're at the kind of at the base of the takeoff, you don't see the landing because the the lip or like the entirety of the of the takeoff of the jump is right in front of you. So you're basically looking at the top of the takeoff and you can't see the landing, which sometimes can be scary. If you have a really big jump, you might be not looking at the landing for a long time. So that can be hard when it comes to managing your speed and, um, and just kind of general anxiety about what you're doing. Uh, I would imagine. So your entire horizon is dominated by this wall of snow. You're usually starting to spin and, and flip. You got to believe you're almost invincible to get yourself to that point, no? Yeah, totally. Um, when it comes to doing tricks that you've done 10,000 times, that's that's really, really fun. That's 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 when I feel like a pro because I feel absolutely 100% comfortable like I could just sleep on this trick and it feels good I know I look good like I know the grab looks good like everything about it is just fun because you're aware of everything that's going on and you know you're safe you know you're styling you know that your buddies aren't going to land on you that are right behind you because you've done this trick a million times and um yeah it's just it's awesome but sometimes it can be a bit less awesome. There's like kind of two types of things that go wrong on a jump. 
the first one is when you do, you know, you do a lot of your trick right, but there's something that goes wrong like midair or like kind of right at the end. Maybe you don't see your landing or something and then you crash. And it's like the trick was feeling good until this thing happened like late in the trick or something goes wrong on the takeoff and it basically screws the entire thing. And if you don't let the jump do all of the work to like get you in the air, um, you're not going to go nearly as high. So when you rush a trick on the takeoff, ski, snowboard, like aerials, any sort of acrobat would tell you that it feels like your body is being pulled apart the entire trick. It's like you ever spun around on those things at the playground, you know, when you like hold on to it and you kind of pull forward and back and forward and back. Well, it's kind of like that, like trying to pull forward and it's really, really hard to get closer to the pole. That's what it feels like on your body when you, when you rush a trick. And you know instantly from the beginning that it's going wrong. And that's the worst kind ever because then all of a sudden you're like, you're thinking like, I rushed my takeoff, I'm flying through the air, there's no way I'm saving this trick. I'm trying to land on my feet, but I don't know where I'm gonna land because I might land on the knuckle. I don't know if I'm gonna be coming up short or not. You know, all hell kind of breaks loose. Just sucks. Josh Duke out front with a comfortable lead in yellow. Skis a solid run to victory and a beautiful flight there. Off the it's a great question to really think about the, the joy of jumping in big air. For me, uh, it was ultimate expression. I was able to experience this free falling or floating through the air, um, doing these cool tricks. And when you got it right and you put it down, uh, stomped it. It's as close as I've come to being a bird and to be able to fly and be weightless for a moment. Jamie Little, who's with our gold medalist. Josh Duick and his wife, Lacey, here. My name is Josh Duick, and I am a skier. Josh, you've got a perspective on big air that's it's pretty unique. You aren't going to the games, but you're the chef de mission for Canada. What's your involvement in skiing then? I've been involved with uh, the ski industry for probably the last 25 years. Started off as a little grom looking up to all the, the big rippers in freestyle skiing. And back in the day, moguls was the most badass um, sport that you could get into, or at least that's how I saw it. And so this is back in the mid-90s, early 2000s, and uh, competed for a while for uh, province of British Columbia. Uh, made the, the best effort I could to make the national team, but didn't quite make that cut. And so rather than give up on the sport, I continued on in coaching, which was amazing to be able to, to keep involved in some way, shape and form and uh, carry forward my passion for the sport and, and share that with others and get other people stoked on mountain culture and help them to achieve their goals. And it was a, a pretty darn good run in my teens and early 20s. One of the athletes that I coached and one of my favorite athletes um, of all time is TJ Schiller. TJ Schiller, temporary tornado, stop it, buddy. Oh my God. What the wide world of sports was that? <laughs> he, he was super talented athlete through and through, hardworking, gifted, kind, yeah, all, all of the above. He's an awesome, awesome kid. 
But when he competed in big air, he was doing things that nobody could even imagine. And I think it was an opportunity afforded to him by the venue uh, as much as, as anything else. And so that that's pretty exciting. We can, you know, coming into Beijing, there's that potential that we're going to see things that have never been attempted before uh, and accomplished on the world stage. And that's a bit of a product of the big air and the way it's set up, but also the crowd participation and the energy that the crowd brings to the athlete. That environment of a crowd, of a big ski jump, it's one we're going to watch in February, but you've seen it on a screen in very different circumstances. Do you mind if we talk about that? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I guess uh, an interesting thing for me is, is uh, the jump where I broke my back was recorded. And I had this feeling when I was in the hospital and after surgery that it was a, a pretty significant jump. But of course, we always, you know, the fishing tail, like, oh, it was this big and I was super huge. And uh, about a year after my injury, I finally had the courage to watch the footage. And it was exactly how I remembered it. What were you remembering? The, uh, the timestamp for me is March 8th, 2004, uh, mid-afternoon, um, really, really optimal spring conditions, sunny and soft. And we were on the final day of preparing for the Canadian Junior Nationals. So this is a pretty significant event, not only for the athletes I was coaching, but for the club that I was head coach for at the time. And I was young and full of energy and wanted to join the kids in their training efforts that day and ended up miscalculating my speed and overshooting the landing hill and over-rotating Superman front flip. I landed heavy on my chest and was knocked out immediately. When I regained consciousness, not only my world was changed, but the world of all the athletes and my fellow coaches had changed in an instant. uh, It's a pretty heavy day for a lot of us. I can imagine going big found you paralyzed from the waist down at 23. I mean, you're in the hospital. I can't imagine what you're thinking about skiing and more importantly about life. Again, timestamp is 2004. There's not a lot of media or YouTube or stuff like that to see what's happening in the world. Uh, I was just told that there's something called the sit ski and that I would be back in the mountains riding it one day with all my friends. And uh, that was a pretty powerful sentiment uh, from my doctor at the time. So instead of telling me what I'd lost, you'd give me hope about what I can look forward to. And coupled with that, I was um, very fortunate. To, uh, I had the hots for this cool girl that I'd met at a, a ski hill a couple years earlier and um, timing just wasn't right for us. But when she heard about my accident, she quit her job, bought a one-way bus ticket and came to the hospital to visit a friend in need. And um, that was 17 years ago. Uh, Lacey and I are still together. We've got two kids. And uh, a lot of it was a story of love and a story of hope. And uh, you join those two forces and, uh, you know, my passion for skiing and mountain culture made for a pretty exciting time. You were a high level skier, one who was just below national team level, who, who now couldn't ski. So, you know, several months after I broke my back, I was back on the mountain and uh, a year later, I was learning to ski race. And uh, a few years after that, I was competing for Canada on the world stage. And the rest is history. Uh, it's funny how, you know, one on one hand, we, we have a dream and a goal that we're aspiring to achieve. And I always wanted to represent Canada. And I wanted to be um, a professional skier. 
and uh, in freestyle that never worked out for me, which was pretty disappointing at the time. Um, but uh, post injury, you know, you just redirect your focus. The cliche saying, right, you can't control the winds, but you can adjust your sails. So I just adjusted my sails accordingly and was able to achieve both goals, um, be a pro skier for a period of time and, you know, hit the magazines and the films and also the goal of representing Canada on the world stage. And, and both came together rather nicely, but as noted, very different than what I had envisioned as a child. Another difference is that you were a freestyle rider and ended up at the Paralympics in racing. I would imagine that can be a bit of a culture shift, right? I'm hardcore. Like I was freestyle skier. It was it. Uh, so ski racing was a pretty big adjustment for me at the time. And uh, now that I've gone through both pathways, I'm a pretty big fan of both disciplines. You know, ski racing is super hardcore, right? Like, especially in the sit ski, but really for anybody, um, you know, you're this little go-kart bombing down the mountain at these insane speeds and uh, managing risk, which I find to be pretty similar to the general mindset of being a freestyle skier. It's just different costume. That risk management costume is one you got to put on for the first ever sit ski backflip. That first backflip, as Nick Gepper mentioned a bit ago, is one you will never forget. You got to have that moment again. Well, um, you know, we're flashing forward eight years, I think, to, to when I did the backflip in the sit ski. And a part of me was curious if it could be accomplished because it had never been done before. Uh, and, and more than that, it was an opportunity for me to see if I could set a pretty ambitious goal that I was really hungry to accomplish, but yet still listen to my body, listen to my instincts uh, when it comes to managing risk in those situations. And so uh, I told the crew that I was working with, Douglas and Trennan and Bushy and Miles and a, a good group of friends that I grew up skiing with. I said, if you can hold the space for me, help me build the jump, then uh, there's a good chance I'm going to do something totally rad. And there's also a good chance that I'm not even going to hit the jump and it's just going to sit there. And uh, the first couple of times that we built the jump, and if you've seen the backflip on YouTube, it's it's sizable, right? Like this is a significant feature that put me into the air for a few seconds. And uh, I bailed on it the first couple of times. I mean, if falling on skis looks bad, I can't imagine what a sit ski bail looks like. Yeah, school of hard knocks. You know, biffing on a sit ski is no fun, right? You got to appreciate that it's 40 pounds of metal strapped to a body that's half paralyzed. So when things don't go well, it, uh, it tends to go pretty bad actually. But uh, the third time out, it all felt like it lined up and definitely aware of the, the risk involved in, in what we were doing. Um, but when it all felt right, it was such a great opportunity for me to overcome that fear and accomplish something that I truly believed was possible. What does it mean when someone does a first trick, like your sit-ski backflip? Um, we saw that when I pushed it to do the backflip, it uh, it definitely opened up a world of opportunity. And um, looking at guys like Jay Raw or Trevor Kennison, what they're up to right now and how they're evolving the sport is mind-boggling. Like I think of Jay and some of the, the varials that he's doing, like um, flat three, five, and 720, um, the amount of air awareness that he has and control doing his backflips is just like blowing me away. And quite frankly, so encouraging for the entire sport. 
It's so interesting because we talked about air awareness in episode one of this season a couple of weeks ago with Vincent Joe. What's it like for you in sit skiing? Air awareness is uh, is something I think some people have uh, they're born with to a degree. Uh, it's not something that I was gifted with by far. Uh, I am not very acrobatic by nature. In fact, the the backflip that I did in the sit ski was by far better than any backflip that I did as an able bodied athlete. I was somewhat uncoordinated, which is perhaps why I ended up blowing the Superman front flip when I did. It's certainly something that you can develop through training, uh, trampolines, diving, uh, all sorts of activities to build up that um, body language or that that physical literacy, if you will. I, I was an aerialist in base jumping. I loved you know flipping off of buildings and bridges and all that kind of stuff. So it was pretty natural for me when I got into sit skiing to have that same mindset and, and want to figure out a way to bring it to the Sitski world. My name is Jay Raw from the United States, and I'm a Sitskier. It's like, my name's Jay Raw, and I go big. That didn't sound lame. <laughs> Jay, you're a big air guy in the most profound of ways. Where does that love start for you? Yeah. So as a kid, my parents put me in gymnastics really early because I always liked, you know, climbing on things, jumping off things. Uh, from there, I, I grew a love for doing flips and it might sound crazy, but as a kid, I always wanted to fly. And the closest thing that I could figure out to that is, you know, skydiving. Obviously, if you want to do it more than once, you need a parachute. So I started looking into how to get into base jumping. Jay, remind us what base jumping is, if not skydiving. So base jumping, base is an acronym for building antenna, span, and earth. And a span would be a bridge. Uh, the difference would be in skydiving, you have a, a main parachute and you have a reserve parachute. And you have a lot of time. You have 60 seconds of free fall. And if you open you know, a couple thousand feet up, you got a few minutes of, of uh, time underneath your canopy. Uh, with base jumping, you can jump as low as you know 200 feet. Some people jump shorter than that. Uh, but you, you have a single canopy uh, system, so you don't have that backup. And even if you did have a backup, you, you rarely have the time to deploy it if you were to need, uh, to need it. You, you kind of have to get it right the first try. And if you have any kind of malfunction, you have to figure it out really quick or else it's going to be high consequence. One try, a high consequence. Obviously not the same stakes, but it does remind me of a new contest format we've been talking about. So I've always liked to uh, to push the limits, but I, I do so pretty gradually. So I, I learn where where I need to, like the skills that I need to learn and, and, the, and have to stay safe in these sports. Um, and I practice them, you know, as, as much as I possibly can. With base jumping, I always knew that there's a risk of getting injured. Um, ironically, I never thought about having a spinal cord injury. I always figured that if it's, you know, a, a minor accident, you're going to be, you know, bruised up, maybe broken bones. And if it's serious, you're, you're going to die. And it was in the middle of the two. You know, I, I was there. I was doing the stuff. I, I did three jumps earlier that day. I rode Heelys off of the handrail and did a front flip and <laughs> swooped over the little bridge and everything felt good. You know, I felt like it was, it was gonna work. 
on, on my accident, um, me and my buddy, we were walking out to the bridge. We had our parachutes packed, we're ready to jump. And he's like, hey, do you wanna, you wanna do a two-way? And a two-way just means that you're both jumping at the same time. So uh, one of you picks high, one of you picks low. And um, I rarely did two-way jumps or, or like multi-person jumps because I, I wasn't super comfortable with them. But uh, I was just like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And uh, we're, we're like walking up the stairs. I'm like, hey, I got an idea. How about I stand on your shoulders, I hold my pilot chute, which is what you throw to open the parachute, and I'll put that in my right hand, and I'll put your pilot chute in my left hand, and basically we'll fall off together. It seems super simple and straightforward. He leans forward, I go, I go off with him, and you know, the rest goes to plan. Uh, the thing we didn't think about is I should have been the one leaning forward to start the fall, because when he leaned forward, uh, my feet went forward and my head went back. So it caused me to fall back towards the bridge. Uh, my feet caught up on the uh, handrail. His pilot chute uh, wrapped around my leg. You know, I pulled his parachute out. And as I tumbled off the bridge, his parachute opened. I landed inside of it and collapsed it. And then we spiraled. Um, I, I just remember looking up at the sky and seeing his parachute flapping around my feet. And I was like, this is not good. I need to get out. So I kicked my feet over my head and the next thing I saw was the ground and I was just like, yep, gonna hit. After my accident, I, I really wasn't sure if I'd ever get back to the same level of, uh, I, I don't know that I call it competitiveness, but the, to, to be able to do any of the, the flips and the spins and things that I'd love to do before. So when I first saw sit skiing, I was looking at videos of people kind of being steered down the hill and uh, it really wasn't appealing to me. It wasn't until I started looking deeper into it and uh, came up with the name Josh Duick and he was doing backflips and pillow lines and really made it look like fun. And uh, as soon as I saw it, it clicked in my head. I'm like, dude, people are doing this. Like, this isn't just, you know, like a roller coaster being steered down the hill. Like you can, you can have freedom. You can, you can do whatever you want to on this thing, just like you would on a snowboard. Um, you know, so much changed with my body. It just, it didn't seem like it would be anywhere near what it was. Um, and when I found sit skiing, I, I thought the same thing. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't realize like just how much I was going to be able to do on this. Like I, I didn't, I wasn't planning to like push the sport of sit skiing and, and do never been done tricks before. I, I just, I just wanted to do things that, that felt good. Like it felt good to do a, a 360 on the snowboard. You know, it feels good to do flips off of, off of the bridges and, and the buildings. And I just wanted to see if I could bring that to what I was able to do now, which is sit skiing. Okay. My big question is that searching for air for one perfect jump has cost you both Josh and Jay so much. Why is your first instinct to go back to pushing those limits? It's a good question. You know, uh, it wasn't a jump that caused me to get injured. It was me. Uh, I think Happy Gilmore and that uh, his caddy is like, guns don't kill people, people kill people. And there is a truth to that in sport as well, right? Like uh, sport is a great amphitheater and a good analogy for life. And in my case, I think I was destined to make some big mistakes and, and to have to learn from them. And so I don't really put that on the sport or the jump. Uh, risk is all around us. If you look at my story, I got injured doing a big air jump. And uh, then I continued to pursue that after a, a period of time. And, and the why, why, why would I do that? 
Um, there was a curiosity for sure. Uh, there is an innate passion um, for exploration uh, and, and self-discovery. And so it wasn't really about the jump. The jump is a bit of the storyboard, but really it was about personal growth and adjustment. So when I say that, it's um, we'll, we'll go back to the time of my accident and coming down the end run, I knew very well that I was going too fast and it was not likely going to work out in my favor, but I was pretty insecure kid. And so I was constantly trying to prove myself and prove my worth to everybody that uh, I was around. And inevitably that caught up with me and it, it caught up in a pretty significant way, which you know, put me in a wheelchair. Uh, so why would I want to continue to do that? I just, I just look at it like I wouldn't want to live my life uh, wishing that I had gone out and done this, but not doing it because I was afraid that I might get hurt. You know, I feel like I, I regret the, uh, the jump that, that broke my back, but also I, I don't regret the 350 other base jumps that I did before that and all the fun that I had and all the, all the friends that, that, you know, I made and, you know, lifelong relationships that, that are just priceless to me. So I, I wouldn't give that up for, for security, you know? No, I understand that. Nick, you haven't had a life-changing accident. Does that apply to Olympic skiers just the same? There is risk in, in what you're doing and there's risk hurting yourself. There's risk of dying. There's risk of, of, uh, ending your season. Um, but there's also confidence that you could land a trick because you've done so many and you've trained hard and all of this. So, I mean, you kind of, you have to find that balance between being smart and staying healthy, but also pushing yourself, getting yourself out of your comfort zone to, to progress yourself and progress the sport. It's so interesting how patience and reason are the keys to doing the biggest and the craziest stunts. Is that accurate? Would you say? It's amazing. Like how much of a metaphor for life it is too, because whenever I try and rush something in life, it always screws up and there's always repercussions. It's the same exact thing with skiing. Like you got to be really patient and just let the trick happen um, instead of trying to force it. But that's really hard when you're trying to learn a new trick and you're like really thinking about it and you're like, all right, all right, like I got to like do this and do this and do this. And there's like so much thinking involved, but the, the mastery comes from just letting it happen. After doing the 360s, um, I started doing them on, on bigger jumps. I kind of dialed it in. Uh, Tanner Hall was actually, at, uh, when I was learning how to do the 360s, and he was he was psyched. He's like, dude, you're coming in too fast, or you're, you're slow down the spin. Like, the cork angle that you have is really good. Just, just slow it down a little bit, and you're going to stick it. I mean, I'm, I'm like the king of instant gratification, which, you know, hurts me sometimes. But when I was younger, I'd jump on my skateboard and like I could learn a new trick. Boom, like right there, I could do it over and over again. It was so exciting. Same with my rollerblades, same with my bike. And with skiing, it was it was very similar. Like there's so many cool ways to learn new tricks and contort your body in different ways and add style and kind of being like the skiing ninja. But then you get to a certain point where the tricks get really big and, and really gnarly and they're no longer like just tricks. I kind of, somebody once described them to me as, as projects, like 
especially when you when you're at the top of your game and the tricks are so gnarly now like it becomes a project to learn a new trick now it's like a lot of preparation and hard work and dedication to to get it done my spirit animal is uh, the great blue heron or at least somebody told me that it was and that made sense to me and so they're very patient hunters and sometimes they can sit in in a zen state for hours or hours until it's the right time to strike and when they strike uh, then they strike with great passion and, and uh, accuracy and so that's been my general approach because uh, consequence is real risk is real um, and the weight of a 40 pound sitski attached to your body is also very real and so it's not like i don't like to crash uh, i've gotten pretty good at it but i definitely do my best to minimize when i do which brings us back to big air skiing's olympic debut it's the venue where competitors will have a decisive strike with very real consequences. Man, I'm excited to see all of it. The big air venue in Beijing looks crazy. I've never been there, but it looks like the coolest thing ever. Organizers have constructed the first permanent big air venue. It isn't on a ski slope, but rather a former steel mill out of which a tower and slope stands on stilts. Competitors will use an elevator to reach the top of their runs. You can understand it as a viewer, because it's like this one jump, wow, like crazy thing. Um, it's exciting as an athlete, because it's a little bit more of a laid back vibe, because everybody's all in the same spot. It's a short venue, like it's not, it's like a big party. And the venue in China is one of the best ones I've ever seen in the world. So yeah, ski and snowboard, big air, this year is gonna is gonna be spectacular. Big air is a bit of a one and done, right? You know, if you got half pipe, there's multiple hits. You got slope style, there's multiple jumps and rails. So it's really about who can link together the, the best combined run. Whereas big air is, it's kind of like world championships or the Olympics in the sense that it's like a one standalone opportunity to excel. And so, in some senses, that I think opens up the opportunity for evolution um, and progression in the sport. It's where all the lessons of chasing air will be required. But with big air, I would say that there's more of an emphasis on kind of an explosive one-hit wonder instead of this kind of long finesse that you got with slope style. It's like, if you only have one shot, are you going to go try something that you haven't done before or aren't landing consistently? Or are you going to stick to a stock trick and maybe not win? With Big Air, you got like one chance, one opportunity to get your trick as close and as amazing as possible. Big Air, Big Glory, Big Falls, and bigger life lessons. No matter your chair, it's must-watch TV and hopefully gets you trying new and bigger things of your own. That's it for this week's episode of The Podium. Follow now wherever you're currently listening to get automatic downloads. For more Olympic content ahead of Beijing, check out NBCOlympics.com. And starting February 3rd, tune into the networks of NBC. This past year, I uh, I landed a 540 the year before, and I was like, dude, I'm ready for the 720. And 
I, I threw the first one and I stuck it and it was, it was an insane feeling. Hey, Nick Gepper, I know you just finished watching Jay's video. I'm so curious as a two-time Olympic medalist, what does this Sitski 720 look like to you? That was pretty badass. And actually it looks a lot, like fundamentally, it looks a lot like how we do it. I mean, because the sit skier, Jay, still has the use of his kind of his core because, I mean, that like the core and the hips is primarily how we spin ourselves around. But that that was like, like it looked like he could have done a dub 10. Like it looked like there was a lot more to be done based on his execution. It was cool. I actually liked the cork three a lot too. That was really sweet. <laughs> that was like really sweet. <laughs>